Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, one of the truly great archaeological finds of the 20th century. And uh, we've learned a great deal from the content uh, of the scrolls. It helps to illumine, uh, again, first century uh, uh, Palestinian uh, Judaism. Uh, We get uh, just a lot of fascinating uh, insights. But it's not just the content of the scrolls that are fascinating. It's the story of the scrolls themselves, their their finding, um, their distribution, the controversy surrounding who gets free access uh, to the scrolls, uh, and now questions about forgeries that are out there. With me to talk about a variety of these topics is Dr. Christopher Rolston. He chairs the Department of Classical and Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at George Washington University, where he's also a professor of Northwest Semitic Languages and Literatures. He also edits Marav, a journal of Northwest, uh, Northwest Semitic, and you can find his blog at uh, rolstonepigraphy.com. We will have that, uh, again, linked at our site as well. And Dr. Rolston, good to have you with me. Thanks. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you and with your audience. Thank you very much for asking me. Let's uh, let's just talk a little bit about the finding of the scrolls in the first place. Tell us a little bit about that story, and then eventually I want to get to the question of access to the scrolls. But for people who don't know the story, give us the thumbnail sketch of the discovery of the scrolls. Very good. Happy to do so. So, in essence, during late 1946 or early 1947, some Bedouin were in the region of what we now know as Kirbet Qumran. It's on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. And the story that was originally told is that they were looking for a lost sheep. It may very well be that they were looking for saleable items. Okay. <laughs> there was a long history of that sort of thing. Uh, but ultimately, they did find a cave, and uh, there were scrolls in that cave. Seven, uh, uh, The first seven scrolls were in there. And someone named Muhammad Adib is the Bedouin who's most associated with that, that find. And so it was a fascinating find. It was a large Isaiah scroll, a smaller Isaiah scroll. There was another work called the Manual of Discipline. Uh, or the rule of the community, Seraka Yahad. It's similar in certain ways in terms of uh, of, uh, some of the content, not the details, but some of the content to the Didache, uh, which is an early Christian uh, rule of the community, as it Mm -hmm. were. There was a a commentary in the book of Habakkuk. There was, in essence, a retelling of uh, Genesis called the Genesis Apocryphon. And there was a war scroll, a very fascinating uh, it, it basically discussed a war at the, the end of the age, as it were, and there were some, some hymns. So just some really fascinating texts that were found in that first group of seven scrolls. What, uh, how were they distributed after the finding? I mean, who purchases them? Where are they held? Uh, what happens to them? Yeah, so in essence what happened is the Bedouin uh, took them ultimately to someone who was a, a Syrian Orthodox Christian named Kondo, and uh, he ultimately talked with someone called the Metropolitan Samuel, part of the, uh, the Syrian Orthodox Church. He was especially associated with 
with St. Mark's in uh, Jerusalem. The Metropolitan Samuel uh, purchased uh, four of the scrolls, and then uh, three of the scrolls were later purchased by Sukenik. Uh, and so that's, that's the story of that, that first group of seven. Mm-hmm. The fascinating thing is that the four that the Metropolitan Samuel had ultimately were the subject of an advertisement in the Wall Street Journal in 1954, basically an advertisement for four ancient scrolls. And uh, so, so it's a really fascinating story that, wow. that uh, some of the scrolls basically uh, first were advertised in the Wall Street Journal for sale. And, and it, it worked. They sold, as it were. <laughs> Who purchased them? Uh, ultimately, it was uh, some people associated with Hebrew University. Okay. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, and so ultimately they all ended up in, in what we now know is the Shrine of the Book. They were initially in what's called the Rockefeller Museum, uh, now used to be the, the Palace, Palestine Archaeological Museum. So that's where they ended up, and, and uh, uh, some of the scrolls still remain uh, right in the Rockefeller, but uh, a number in the, the Shrine of the Book, which is part of the Israel Museum. Okay. Uh, so there was, there was initially a, a team of scholars uh, selected, to uh, to work on them, and, and it was a small team. Uh, that was a long time ago, and and uh, money was initially very tight. So it was a small group of scholars. And what was the reason for limiting access to the scrolls? What, what's the rationale for that in the academic world? So initially, it probably wasn't. It's a good question. It probably wasn't so much an issue of limiting access, but. Uh, in certain respects, in certain respects it was, uh, but in certain respects it was just, this was a, a rare uh, corpus of literature, uh, and uh, some were suggesting that they might be medieval uh, or even forged in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Solomon Zeitlin was suggesting that. Scholars such as W.F. Albright or Johns Hopkins University uh, said, no, 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 these are, these are definitely authentic. And so as, as news traveled, a team was put together, and, and the teams often start uh, small and then become larger, and that was the case with this. And initially there was some money from Rockefeller. Uh, it lasted through about 1960. That allowed people to work diligently on uh, the scrolls. There were 11 caves in total, and, and the, the scroll fragments from Cave 4 were extraordinarily numerous, but so fragmentary, and that's the corpus that really generated uh, the greatest controversy, because the scrolls from the other caves were published fairly rapidly, okay. uh, but those from Cave 4 took a while, and that's really what created much of the the discussion uh, uh, later in, say, 1991, 1992, about access to the scrolls. Okay, and uh, w- just give me a little bit of insight into the 1991 uh, controversy. Uh, I know Herschel Shanks had been lobbying for e- greater access. Uh, I, I assume others were as well. Yes, y- yes, for sure. And, and Herschel was a dear friend. He's, he's uh, now passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a dear friend. And, and he became involved probably about 1985 in the pages of uh, the magazine that he founded, Biblical Archaeology Review, and he began to suggest that the publication team wasn't working 
rapidly enough, that access was restricted. And there were a couple of scholars uh, who basically had attempted to uh, gain access to the scrolls, uh, and they weren't given access by uh, John Strugnell, who was uh, for a time the chief editor of the scrolls. Uh, the people who requested access were Philip Davies and, and Robert Eisenman, uh, fine scholars in, in a number of ways. But when they weren't given access, that really provided Herschel Shanks the impetus to push really hard mm-hmm. uh, for access. And and then, right, and then ultimately, you know, the New York Times and, and the Washington Post published articles in 91 and 92, in essence, suggesting that there was a scrolls cartel that was that was restricting access. And mm-hmm. it, it really wasn't so dramatic as that. It was basically scholars who had obligations to teach and uh, they needed to uh, conduct as much research as possible, but time was finite. And yeah. And yeah. so things were okay. moving too slowly for sure for, from the perspective of some. Um, now today, is it fairly easy to get access to the scrolls? Sure. Absolutely. So what happened uh as you know, uh, this is sort of an anniversary year in certain respects. In 1991, uh, Ben Zion Vockholder, who was a professor at Hebrew Union College, Jewish, Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, and then uh, a student, a graduate student, Martin Abeg, basically published on the basis of a concordance which the Scrolls team had put together. Uh, Vockholder and, and Abeg basically published something that they called a preliminary edition of the unpublished Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was basically the, the Cave 4 fragments, those those fragments from Cave 4, uh, which were almost innumerable, which, which hadn't been published. And so that really sort of broke things wide open. And uh, then the Huntington Library in 1991 had a full set of all of the photographs. Mm, okay. And uh, they in essence, that anyone who wants access to these photographs, any scholar, may in fact have access. And so that really broke things wide open. Access from then until now has been total for any scholar who wants it. 1993, so just a couple of years later, a major publisher in the field, uh, Brill, published a a microfiche edition, uh, and it was expensive. But uh, many libraries, many scholars even bought copies of that. So basically from 1991 uh, on, access has been uh, total. Yeah. Uh, scholars okay. have access to the entire, entire corpus. In fact, anybody who wishes to look at the corpus may do so now. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the problem of forgeries. There was the story uh, dealing with the Museum of the Bible, for instance, uh, how, are forgeries epidemic? I mean, how, how big a problem is that? Yeah, so uh, good question. So going all the way back to ancient times, uh, there have been people who have been forging all sorts of things, including documents. And the motives are varied. Often they're economic, uh, but not always. There can be other motives, uh, religious motives, political motives. Uh, general hubris, uh, sour grapes between scholars. Uh, so forgeries have been around for a very long time. I have a book that is almost done 
discussing the history of forgeries, and they go all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, uh, and through to the modern period. And so what happens often is whenever there's a great find of genuine, legitimate, ancient texts, ancient inscriptions or ancient papyri, uh, ancient scrolls, often in the wake of that, there will be forgeries that are produced by people who want to sell them for high prices. Gotcha. Can you, can you hang on for just a little longer with me? Sure, sure. Have to take yes, a break. Sure. We'll come back and continue conversation. Talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Krista Rolston and uh, going over the story of the scrolls. Talking about forgeries. We'll be back with a little bit more. <laughs> 